Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. You join us on part two of three of our season finale, wrapping up this journey we have been on together, discerning what it looks like to embody a subversive ministry presence. In part one, we sat down with Ryan Fasani, and we talked to him about all things broad kingdom imagination, both his definition of that term but also what he thinks it means for the future of ministry. In today's episode, we sit down with Brian Wardlaw to have a similar conversation all about a benevolent orthodoxy. Once again, we invite you on this journey with us, a journey that includes both the naming of the tensions we have felt and the ministries we have served, but offers hope for a different approach to what ministry might look like tomorrow if we choose to remain faithful to our calling today. We don't have all the answers, but we know we need to start somewhere. And we invite you along the journey here on the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. What I noticed was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. As we wrapped up the conversation in our last episode about cultivating a broad kingdom imagination, you may recall that my co-host Ryan Fasani named an important observation about this podcast. It accomplishes something for both us and our listeners that needs to be named and celebrated. We have both given ourselves, and those of you who listen, permission to dream about what a faith community might look like, what it means to actually fulfill a calling, or what is or isn't pastoral ministry. In today's episode, we continue this discussion in discerning what it looks like to be known by a benevolent orthodoxy. Both Ryan Fasani and I sit down with our co-host Brian Wardlaw to ask him what this tenet of ours means to him and where he first heard this term and what it looks like for us moving forward as guerrilla pastors. Here's our conversation. 
Brian, I've never heard this term before, benevolent orthodoxy. You're the first person I ever heard utter this word. I'm curious, uh, as a sort of explanation of, I don't know how you discerned maybe living it out and then articulating it, how you came up with the term benevolent orthodoxy. Yeah, uh, not mine, <laughs> uh, but just for, uh, I think I'm not going to drop a lot of names of where I've read that just for uh, clarifying the conversation and not let it, allowing that to be caught up in the weeds of, of, uh, of who I read or don't read. <laughs> so uh, several authors I've read that refer to it as benevolent orthodoxy, um, just as a way of looking at belief. So um, definitely did not come up with it. Uh, but when I started hearing it, um, or reading about it a little bit more, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, and here's benevolent orthodoxy, and then the description, it was talking about how we live out belief, and what we believe, and how that interacts with our world, and the personhood of God, and all that, and history, and then them saying, and that is a benevolent orthodoxy. So it was almost like a word that followed action, if you will, um, um, a way of, of living it out and way of being, a way of thinking. So, uh, and I, I think when I started hearing, I was like, oh my goodness, that is, that is what my heart has been yearning for. Like it named something, it named something in my heart. Uh, that that that's where I started using it more. Can you also just speak to that process of discerning what is or isn't benevolent orthodoxy, if that's even the language you would use for your own personal practice and belief uh, lived out? Yeah. So um, this is kind of what some a few little things that I've said about it. Uh, it's um, sometimes orthodoxy has become so rigid and our belief has actually became our religion um, in itself. Uh, and I remember some arguments even in seminary over uh, the goal to be, to get to right belief. Uh, and it just, and yet I never found that as an aspiring goal <laughs> um, because it just seemed the closer people got to right belief, the more flawed it became. Um, uh, so I would say that I, it, I would say, so this is the, this is what the embodiment of it, I would say is that we don't have to be right. Um, uh, I remember again, um, as education went on in my life, people just continuing to remind me that the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. Um, and so therefore there's a natural humility that comes with knowledge. Maybe. Uh, um, and uh, there's, so there's a natural humility that comes with knowledge that only allows you to realize that what you know is, is beyond you. Um, and you're trying to grasp at, at things that are bigger than you. And I don't think that's, I, I would say it's all spiritual, but I don't think that's always nailed down to just spiritual things. I've heard people talk about that even within medicine and science and things like that. Creation. Uh, and uh, evolution even. Uh, so I think those are things. So we don't have to be right. That's, that's a piece of benevolent orthodoxy. And it's not our goal to just be right. Um, it's, 
it's our it's our goal to journey towards seeking um and finding people that are also on that journey um and doing that together uh and that i think that plays into the other piece and that is that we're not a defender of truth um if if god is truth if there and if there is some and I do believe there are some truths out there that are beyond whether or not I say they're they're there. Um, I'm, I don't have to be a defender because if it if that's true, then I don't have to defend it. And so those two things are those two things lead me down a path that is naturally more benevolent than being a defender and be being right. Um, so it and. Uh, so then, so to go towards more of an, an affirming definition of it, um, I would say if if we if if we say the base of of our faith is that God is love um, theologically, if that's the base, that's a core, um, then me living out my faith is an imperfect embodiment of love, um, and so. And as and as, so as I find that I journey with people, even friends that don't name faith at all, but they're journey and they're seeking, uh, they're seeking uh, meaningfulness, they're seeking uh, importance, uh, purpose, uh, they're seeking uh, true relationship, deep relationship with others. Um, and and I would say with other people, but also with creation in itself, those are people that I can that I can journey with because they're seeking, and then I try to embody an uh, this love that I think reflects God of all creation, and and did, and then I've I've kind of said this the last five years is that one of the biggest I find that one of the best places of ministry and I call it is my ministry of apologizing. Um, and it's when I have to go to a friend and say, I'm sorry, I wasn't the person that I want to be. And they're like, oh, no, don't worry about it, man. I, I get it. I do the same thing sometimes. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to say I'm sorry. And man, just again, we're embodying, an, we're imperfectly embodying a perfect love of God. And I, that's a reflection. That allows me again, imperfectly, to look and go towards my world, all of my world, uh, with a much better, um, a much truer, let me say this, a much truer sense of love, grace, and mercy. Because as I give that, I have to remind myself that I need it. I'm able to give it to my world uh, all around me. Um, and try to embody that and receive it, and just just to be clear. So, um, so there's, so if I was to say benevolent orthodoxy is a way of believing about God, about how that how faith is formed around that, and then the intersection of how then that allows me, and I'm talking about me as an individual because all this is processing through my head and heart. Um, um, interacts with my world, um, and it allows it's it allows me cognitively to do it in a way that is much more loving and merciful and full of grace than when I was trying to 
think to grasp perfect truth and knowing and then trying to get other people into that small box that I'd created so I could grasp it. Um, yeah. So benevolent orthodoxy, again, is a framework that allows us to just move and interact with our world and with, I would say, with ourselves, because um, I think that's a big piece of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by the ministry of apology. And that could easily be sort of filtered through, like defensively filtered through, like, I don't know, a, a, an insensitive ego and come out the other end as a sign of weakness and a coping mechanism and the early signs of cancel culture, like, like, a, like a foreboding like assurance because the fear of cancel culture or something like that. But that's not all what I hear. Um, so I want to name what I hear and then I want to ask you for clarification. I hear that in a, in a ministry of apology, which, by the way, you said was a, a type of uh, affirming characteristic of benevolence, of benevolent orthodoxy. I hear, um, I hear you affirming that embrace. I hear you embracing Brian the certainty in your uncertainty. A certain, an assurance, a confidence in your frailty, a positivity in your finitude and weakness. And to me, just from the outset, that sounds a very much like the person that was incarnate of the word, right? Like that sounds like a, for lack of a better term, a Jesus forward type of orientation. So here's my clarifying question. How does that, how does benevolent orthodoxy make guerrilla ministry more of a reality in your context than certainty boxes and propositional confidence? Yeah, I think, I think I'll answer that, uh, from a preschool um so uh kind of example um and let me go back to the ministry of apology joke uh kind of <laughs> half serious right um yeah when, when kids are five years old even seven years old and if if uh, some interaction happens and a teacher says you need to go apologize and the one person is hurt and the other person has to go apologize. Even at that age, they know if that apology is sincere. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's sincere. And if I can just take that as an example as an adult, it's so true too. Whether, it's, whether I'm apologizing insincerely, because it's my ministry of apology. No, <laughs> right? Uh, no, when I go apologize, it is, it is deeply felt. And in fact, I have trouble not tearing up uh, when I'm apologizing. Uh, and they know it's deep. Um, but I think that is, and that is, when you talk about the check in the boxes of truth, oh, man, I don't care who you are. Um, you know it's not fully true when you try to say, I have figured it out. I figured it all out. 
and let me put it in this little box uh, and show you. They, they know it's insincere. As, as that five-year-old five year knows that that apology is insincere and says, they didn't mean it, or <laughs> the hurt continues, um, or you see the five-year-old walk up and hug their friend and say, I'm sorry, and they know it's sincere, and you see the healing happen. I think the same is true when we try to take a cheap level of truth checking um, and take it away from a, and again, theologically, when we take it away from an incarnate God, relational God, and that this relationship, and I'll talk about specifically, that I have fully embodied the need for grace and mercy. Mm. Not, using Nazarene language, not that that sanctifies me into perfection. It sanctifies me into perfect uh, submission to that grace and mercy. <laughs> and that's, that is, I mean, if you, again, if you read enough, that's a whole, it's all there, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's, I don't need to go on and on about that. Why, why not just orthodoxy? Why isn't a tenant of guerrilla pastors just orthodoxy? And, and as opposed to like, I mean, obviously I'm not suggesting that it should be, you know, uh, closed-minded, you know, rude orthodoxy or something like that. Like that's not necessarily the alternative. What, why the need to name benevolence? What is it? Why is benevolence so critical as part of one of our tenants? I think, I think because it's just, it's, I, I feel like the posture of a God that creates is, is in itself benevolent. And as soon as sometimes maybe it's just me, um, I was never very smart in school. <laughs> uh, but orthodoxy to me just seemed rigid when I first interacted with it. And I think it can lead it, lead towards, it can lead towards rigidness. Um, uh, it can re lead, it can easily, you can take orthodoxy into ego, I think, a lot easier than you can into, a hu into humility and submission. Uh, so I think, I think that's why, and that's, that's probably out of my own journey and interacting with that word from, uh, yeah, if, if someone, if someone asked me to just define orthodoxy, I, orthodoxy, I'm not sure I can, I'd fumble around a definition. Uh, so some of it is just my journey and with interacting with that word itself that I feel like benevolence, but, but I also believe that. And when, when I was a youth pastor for years, the, I said so many times to kids that the one thing I felt like that was missing in, in the U.S. church was a sense of humility. Uh, um, and we can, that's a whole other episode if you want to really do want to talk about maybe the whys of that happens. But yeah, so that's, I think that's, that's why, man, the ability for the church in the U.S to continue to decline to a place where they have to rely on the presence and relationship of the Spirit of Christ that allows us to then become benevolent towards our world rather than uh, colonizers, uh, I think is a 
is can only be a blessing and i'm i'm looking forward to it and and i'm even excited of where we are now based on where we were 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, a little bit excited <laughs> we haven't come that far but uh but anyway so i'm hearing something overtly and something subtly i'm hearing overtly that orthodoxy as a concept when it's embodied, it take it must take on a certain posture, and the posture is benevolence or humility, right? So that's one reason for the, for the term benevolent to qualify, if you will, the type of orthodoxy or the embodiment of the orthodoxy. The other thing I'm hearing that's more subtle, and and Josiah, jump in here if if you're hearing the same thing, Brian, just take take it from here if you want if you want, or or throw another question back at me, however you want to handle it. The more subtle thing that I'm hearing is that within orthodoxy, think if you think of orthodoxy as pillars of rightness, right? Correct belief, these sort of pillars that hold up this sort of building of faith, if you will, this architecture of faith, that benevolence insists that those par- that those pillars must have some flexibility in themselves. Not that they must constantly be reevaluated, not that they must evolve over time. None, there, no cheap shots here. Like, don't reduce it to that. But in them, in the, in the same way that you know, you know, in terms in terms of the you know anatomical makeup of you know actual structures, there's always sort of gray space. There's open space. Like, what, it's a way of acknowledging that within the orthodox propositional convictions or affirmations of belief there's always a limitation or there's always space to continue learning and that's something i never encountered growing up right like i got the humility part like i was fortunate to grow up with a pastor that was an incredibly you know humble you know expositor of scripture and so i just felt like it could breathe and there was space but when it came down to the right things to believe it was as rigid as con- set concrete and so but the subtle thing i'm hearing is that within the belief itself like let it breathe a little bit there's always a limitation to our knowing there's always more to be learned right there's always you know fresh insights you know and understanding is that there too yeah for sure man yeah yeah no you've named it well uh i won't i won't try to keep going on that because i think i think you've named it well i mean it's, it's just it's reality and it's and it's a lived experience and there's not again there's not many orthodox pillars that uh you you when you take them and put them next to the frailty of life and journey and experience and uh, and then with a god that is uh that is forgiving restoring continually creating man it's just it just all of a sudden that concrete has to soften um uh yeah i have one final question for you brian i'm not sure this is maybe conjecture or an assumption on my part i feel like benevolent orthodoxy is your favorite one which is i mean if it is that's cool whatever uh i'm more concerned or my question is more related to you always talk about as a framework and it seems like you're always kind kind of drawing connections between it um and in our other tenets or just kind of in general in what we do in ministry so I wonder if you could speak to clarify a little bit, share how you see all of the tenants uh, with, in relationship with each other, and and if 
if I'm right in assuming that you think benevolent orthodoxy kind of creates a framework for maybe subversive ministry in general. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the I I mean benevolent orthodoxy is is a uh foundation it's to me uh for sure. Uh I mean, I think I think in many ways it's just it it it, it is in its in its essence, <laughs> you know, uh a, a st- structural foundation and uh so um, but it also has taken, let me just say why it's, I think it's also taken, if you take orthodoxy as, as a part of my life because I grew up in the church and stuff like that, uh, it's also been restored within my life. Uh, so it's, it's not only that it's, it's foundational because of belief or anything like, or or right belief or whatever but it's it's also because it's it's a picture of the journey of my life um through a rigid you know the rigid evangelical kind of church and shame and guilt and all that to to not walking away to still believing i would say still believing more fully uh, <laughs> i mean the the reality of of who God is, um, and 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 presence of who God is today and now, in my life and and, and throughout all creation. So it 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 is very. However, <clears throat> man, there. If I think if anyone knows me, uh, real well has walked with me on the on my journey. They they wouldn't they they know that I I get really uh, frustrated with just thought boxes um and without any kind of where you know kind of ivory towers i those things frustrate me to death so um so i had to push in in fact um in many ways when i started into this conversation and hearing that language around benevolent orthodoxy and all those thoughts it 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 took a while but at some point i wasn't seeing a lot of i wasn't um, seen a lot of examples of what it could look like. Um, just, it was a lot of deconstruction. Um, and at some point for, for me, and there were a lot of people around us, but for our family too, it, we, we jumped, um, and said, okay, let's, let's try. We have no idea what it's going to look like. We just have, if you will, we just, we jumped ship with just benevolent orthodoxy. Basically, that was all we had. and then over a decade of trying to live into a neighborhood, then I would say, then broad kingdom and diverse praxis became reality, really. But I keep having to go back, um, especially if people are just entering in and, or are in a really frustrated place, just entering into deconstruction or just really frustrated with uh, pastoring or serving in a local church right now, and they're just entering into a conversation that that the kingdom is broader and there is diverse praxis and there's a different way of looking at orthodoxy, all those things are a different posture of orthodoxy, then um, I'm, I'm having to look back and okay, okay, what was the journey to get here? Uh, and I think that's an important part of it. Um, and without, to get to diverse praxis, without a posture of benevolent orthodoxy, I think can get really dangerous. Um, Again, you can get into 
social wars, if you will, if if just diverse praxis is there, um, without any sense. I mean, again, contemplation, uh, any sense of an inner life, uh, um, an inner life uh, individually and uh, corporately. I think a community of people around you that are helping. I think so. Yeah, so they they definitely tie together, um, and and obviously broad kingdom is 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 just start to. And so if yeah, I would say benevolent orthodoxy is the groundwork that walks into this broad kingdom, and all of a sudden you're waking up to realize that uh, the island you live on is part of a much bigger world and galaxy that then then goes full circle back into praxis. And what am I doing on my lonely island? <laughs> and how am I living it out? So just to make sure I'm hearing this correctly, because um, I want to fight for right. And just kidding, I'm not going to defend right, please. Um, uh, broad kingdom or diverse praxis without benevolent orthodoxy can can look like. So for broad kingdom, the, the image I saw in my mind was, uh, without benevolent orthodoxy, broad kingdom imagination for a guerrilla pastor looks like burning down all of the churches that meet on Sunday morning, right? Like, because they're wrong in the way we do it's right. Um, and then with diverse praxis, similarly, you you kind of teased it out a little bit with social wars um, or c- cultural wars, right? Like, that's what diverse praxis can become without it being tethered or within the framework of benevolent orthodoxy. Am I hearing that right? Am I am I close? Yeah, just, just to give another it may not be burning it all down with the other with just benevolent orthodoxy. It may just be leaving it all, um, and leaving it behind. Uh, I, I many people are not going to fight against it. They're just going to leave it. And I sure. think that's what we're seeing. I mean, how most of our friends that we know that have left, they didn't stay and f- try to burn it down. They just left. They just left. They said, "This is no longer a value. I am. I'm going to disconnect." Yeah. And yet the things, every person I've ever talked to, the things they hold on to that were good about it are part of broad kingdom or benevolent orthodoxy. Mm. Uh, Almost, I I still have not found anyone that have been been like, but I love this part about it. Yeah, that's it. That, (laughs) that, that's the meat of it. And there's a way to live that out. So find a group of people, you know what I mean? Find a community and live into that part and, and then let it expand. And I think, yeah. Humility is a precursor for being known for a benevolent orthodoxy. As you heard us discuss with Brian Wardlaw, all that is benevolent orthodoxy, a common thread unraveled. As he said over and over again, we can posture ourselves by being right, or we can posture ourselves by being loving. That there is in fact a difference. When our interactions with others speak only to thinking more highly of ourselves than we think of them, our pride is on full display and those around us can see it coming from a mile away. Much like the example that Brian gave of a metaphorical preschool dust-up where apologies can be doled out and authenticity is clear to see. Instead of choosing pride, perhaps a better way is simply acknowledging that we don't know everything, that we can err on the side of love 
on being charitable, on treating others the way that we would want to be treated, that loving God and loving neighbor is at the pinnacle of what it is to be the people of God, doing the work that God has called his people to do. It's clear to those around us whether or not we are authentic in the way we are engaging, whether we think highly of ourselves or not, whether we are coming to them with an agenda. What if instead we were simply known by a benevolent orthodoxy instead? Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. This is part two of three of our season finale, and join us on the next episode, which will wrap up this season and be all about celebrating a diverse praxis. We would greatly appreciate it if you would rate, review, or subscribe. As always, I am Josiah, and I have been your host, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. <laughs>